Hello and welcome to Frankenwine, the show where two sisters tell science, I wish I knew how to quit you, over a few glasses of wine. I'm Katie, I'm a cancer research scientist. And I'm Emma and I'm here to ask all the stupid questions. This week we're talking about the methods that many of us use to prevent unwanted pregnancies. That's right, contraception. We're going to be finding out about the pros and cons of using contraception, its effectiveness, and exactly what it does to the body. The good, the bad, and the downright ugly. So buckle up, pour yourself a large one, and let us guide you through the real story behind the drugs that have revolutionised sex. quick disclaimer here since neither of us are actually healthcare professionals please don't take what we say as specific medical advice emma what type of drug is currently taken on a daily basis by around 13 percent of all people on earth um well if i'm represented in that 13 percent then it's Okay, then it is either um, an omega-3 supplement or (laughs) the pill. It is the pill, you are correct. (laughs) So yeah, 13% of all people who exist in this world are taking a type of oral contraceptive pill. That's actually, that's a lot more than I thought. I mean, it's probably worth doing a podcast on it. Yeah, I'd say. (laughs) But annoyingly, there's a lot of information and misinformation about the risks, side effects, and even the failure rates that I'm pretty sure the average person wouldn't pass a quiz on. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's right. So let's dig into it. What types of contraception are we going to be talking about today? So since it's such a massive subject, we're going to stick to the main players. So that includes the combined and mini pills, the Mm -hmm. coil, and condoms. Okay, Let's start with a pill. So what exactly am I just mindlessly ingesting every single morning? So a bit of history to start with. The first combined oral contraceptive pill, and we'll talk a bit about what that means later, mm-hmm. was first licensed in the US in 1960 and in the UK in 1961. So it's been described as one of the most significant advances in modern medicine. And as I said before, so many of the world's population actually take it. In fact, I don't know any other drug that is taken by more people. Mm. Was there anything available prior to this? So there were a few things available, including actually the diaphragm. I've heard of that on episodes of Friends. Yeah, and Sex and the City. And Sex and the City. (laughs) (laughs) But even the distribution of birth control material and information was actually illegal in some parts of the world, such as the US, in the early part of the 20th century. Wow. So I'd say that's probably a hangover from the Victorian times, which was all about Puritanism. Mm -hmm. Don't show your ankles, that sort of thing. Yeah. And certainly not, let's talk about women's sexuality. Mm -mm. But unfortunately, as a consequence of this prudishness, lots of nasty things happened, including unsafe abortions Mm. and even infanticide in some parts of the world. So what changed? Well, the birth control and planned pregnancy movement was pioneered by a few people, including Mary Stopes in the UK, which many people might have heard of, Mm -hmm. and a woman called Margaret Sanger in the US, whose organisation, the American Birth Control League, which then became the Planned Parenthood Federation of America, Mm. ultimately helps fund the first oral contraceptive pill, Enovid. Enovid. Or Enovid, maybe. 
out of it. So, okay, what does the pill actually do? How does it stop you getting pregnant? Well, to understand that, we first need to talk about the menstrual cycle. Charming! So this is controlled by a very delicate dance of hormones. Emma, do you know what a hormone is? Um, yeah, I mean, it's the thing that makes you male or female, right? And by the way, I love gentle dance. No, is that wrong? No, okay. Okay, so everybody has hormones, and males and females have different ones. And so um, having the female hormones will make you more female, and the male ones will make you more male. Well, yeah, but you know, we don't just have hormones that control our sex characteristics. I know there's like chromosomes and stuff. That's not a hormone. No, that's what I mean. So it's not just hormones. Okay, yeah, but there are other hormones that aren't specific to the sex characteristic development. Hmm, if you say so. But maybe we'll talk about that in another episode. (laughs) Okay, maybe we need to do a whole word on what a hormone is. (laughs) So what is a hormone? So as usual, a hormone is a type of protein, but these proteins are secreted in the circulatory system and sent to very specific tissues. The specificity of these tissues is actually determined by the availability of certain receptors that are activated by these proteins. Okay. So without these receptors on the outside of cells within a tissue, the hormones can't activate the tissue. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Okay. And that will become important later, I promise. (laughs) So there are two main tissues that are working in a control of the menstrual cycle. The first is the pituitary gland at the base of the brain. Aha, I've heard of that. Good. I'm glad. And the second is the uterus and, of course, the ovaries. Definitely heard of those. (laughs) So we're going to tweet some graphics about this and put a link in the show notes because it really does make more sense when you can visualise what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. So the cycle consists of two main phases. Day 1 to 14 is called the follicular phase and day 14 to 28 is called the luteal phase. Do you know what's funny? I've been going through this every single month for a decade and a half. And that's, I'm pretty sure that's the first time I've ever heard those terms. I mean, you never think about, you never even think about where you are in the cycle, let alone what the cycles are called. What, 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 are, what, what? Or well, maybe you should think about where you are in the cycle. Well, maybe I will now. <laughs> Talk me through. So the follicular phase is focused on preparing an egg for ovulation within the ovaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and also part of this phase is to make the womb more hospitable for fertilization. Hmm. So this, this phase also includes the first five days where you're shedding the leftover lining of the womb called the endometrium from the last cycle called menstruation, which is followed by building that layer up again for the next ovulation. Okay, so during your period, your ovaries are actually growing your eggs. Women are very good multitaskers. Yeah, absolutely. And after your period, you start preparing your womb again. Um, And during this time, there are also changes in the cervical mucus, making it nice and hospitable, nice and hospitable for the sperm. That's important to be a good hostess. Okay, so so now we're on to the ovulation. Yeah, so the main thing that's going on in the follicular phase is the preparation of the egg, which happens in the follicles of the ovaries and is very tightly controlled by hormones. Aha, so here is where the hormones come in. Yes, but also before we move on to the hormones, if no fertilisation of the egg has happened during the follicular phase, the luteal phase begins. This is the response to ovulation and this phase focuses on shutting down the uterus again by thickening the cervical mucus and preparing for endometrial shedding and setting up the ovaries for another round of follicular maturation. There you go. It's actually quite nice to have a better idea of what's going on during my period. I think human bodies are so fantastically hard working. It's amazing. Um, Okay, so let's move on to talking more about the hormones then. So what are they up to during all of this stuff? Yes, so the hormones are essential to this process happening smoothly. So bear with me here because there is a lot going on. Okay, deep breaths, everyone. Okay, hit me with it. (laughs) 
So right at the beginning, the pituitary gland in the brain starts producing two hormones called follicular stimulating hormone or FSH and luteinizing hormone or LH. Okay. So you have to remember what those are. FSH and LH. Yeah. So these are transported to the ovaries where they stimulate the follicles within the ovaries, which contain the immature egg to start growing. (laughs) And as they start growing, they also start secreting more and more estrogen. Mm-hmm. So this estrogen then acts on the brain to inhibit FSH and LH, and this is what's called a negative feedback loop. Does that make sense? So the FSH and LH are being secreted by the pituitary gland, sent down to the ovaries for mm-hmm. the ovaries to start secreting estrogen, which is going back to the pituitary gland to lower the levels of FSH and LH. Okay. Okay. But then what happens next is that around day 10 of your cycle, the maturing follicle within the ovaries suddenly starts producing loads and loads of estrogen, which when it's going back to the pituitary gland, Mm -hmm. instead of acting as an inhibitor of LH and FSH production, now acts as a positive stimulator of the pituitary gland. Okay. So this suddenly means that there's loads and loads of LH and FSH being produced. Mm -hmm. So your estrogen, LH and FSH are all now super high. This sudden massive increase, particularly in FSH, causes the rupture of the follicle and the release of the mature egg equals ovulation. That's kind of amazing because all of this sounds like a mistake. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like it's a negative feedback loop. It's not, it feels like it's not supposed to happen. There's no such thing as a mistake in biology. Yeah, well, there you go. So after ovulation, these three hormones drop. Mm-hmm. So the ovaries respond to this drop by producing progesterone. So this progesterone then blocks the further release of FSH and LH from the pituitary gland, which therefore also decreases estrogen. Okay. So the progesterone levels go down again, and towards the end of the luteal phase, all of these hormones are at an all-time low, which then leads to the collapse of the arteries, which feed the endometrial layer in your womb, mm. and it kickstarts the period and restarts the menstrual cycle. The collapse of the arteries? Hmm. I thought it was the shedding of the lining of your uterus. I well, that, it is. that has to be started by the arteries, because when the arteries stop, the endometrial layer doesn't have anything to live on anymore. Wow. So it's just like, it kicks it, kickstarts it. Phew. Okay, that was a lot. So we're here to talk about the pill. So how does the pill come into all of this, and how does it actually control this? So estrogen and progesterone are responsible for keeping these hormones, LH and FSH, at a stable level. So it means the pituitary gland does not produce enough FSH to allow growth and subsequent release of the egg. I mean, that actually sounds fairly simple when you put it like that. So that's what happens on the regular combined pill, like the one I take. But every time I go in, the nurses always want to make sure that I know about all the other forms of contraception. And they always talk about the mini pill. And um, to be honest, the mini pill sounds kind of cuter. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So does it work in the exact same way? So the mini pill is just progesterone. So that's actually the stronger of the two out of progesterone and estrogen at inhibiting LH and FSH and therefore blocking ovulation. Mm -hmm. And it has the added benefit of altering your cervical mucus, which makes your womb less hospitable to sperm. But taking the estrogen with it also maintains the endometrium, which is what happens normally. Your estrogen levels are quite high during the um, day 5 to 14 of your normal cycle. So it controls your periods, basically. Mm -hmm. So I think people who take the mini pill may get breakthrough bleeding and maybe which can be quite unpredictable which is maybe why it's less popular than the combined pill Mm, not so cute okay so that bit about 
the cervical mucus. Such a nice I'm, sound, I'm, isn't it? I, yeah, I'm kind of drawn <laughs> to that. This kind of makes me laugh. So that's obviously really important because you have to have the right environment to allow the sperm to actually fertilize the egg. Yeah, and it's actually a very, very important function of these hormones, which is often overlooked slightly. Because did you know your cervical mucus is one of the main ways your body controls when your womb is open for business? You mean sometimes it's closed for business? Yeah. Not many people know that actually your womb literally shuts up for the majority of your cycle. And it's only going to let the sperm in when you're in your fertile window. Oh my God. Uh, So remind me when that is. When is the fertile window? So that's for the five to six days surrounding your ovulation, which happens around day 14 of your cycle. Okay. I have an app on my Apple Watch that tells me what... It's called Cycles. It's quite useful actually because it tells me where I am. I'm apparently on day six of 28... So next week, I'm going to be fertile. (laughs) (laughs) Day six of 28. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, probably. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So let me check mine. I'm I'm actually... I don't know if our listeners need to know when we're fertile. No, they probably don't at all. I'm sorry. This is way too much information. But if anyone is wondering, I am in my fertile window. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Anyway... But (laughs) this is also where the idea of sperm living inside your body for up to five days is true. Now, have you heard that before? How sperm can live inside your body? Yeah, and it's quite a scary thought, actually. But I think a lot of people probably don't know that. Yeah. They think that, you know, around the time that you have sex is when you're most likely to get pregnant. But actually, so it could be five days after you've had uh, sex that you could get pregnant. If it's for those five to six days surrounding your ovulation. Right. Because then that's when the environment of the womb is such that the mucus will keep the sperm alive and happy and keep them in there until the egg is ready to be fertilised. Wow. See what I mean? Hard working. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's not get too far into the subject of fertility because I think we could do like a whole other episode on that. Yeah. Okay. Let's not. So let's get back to other forms of contraception. What about the coil, for instance? So there are two types in the UK and other places, we have the copper coil, or the intrauterine device, and the hormonal coil, which is sometimes called the interuterine system, just to differentiate. Okay, and how did these stop pregnancy? So the hormonal coil works in a similar way to the hormone pills, but it releases, I think, just progestin, which is a type of progesterone, and the copper coil basically makes the environment inhospitable to sperm by thickening the cervical mucus, again, mm. and potentially with the copper acting as a natural spermicide. But here, scientists aren't 100% sure they know how it works, but they definitely know that it does. Um, I'm sorry, they don't know that it works. Well, they know that it does work. They just don't quite 100% know how. But that doesn't really sound like it's enough to stop pregnancy. Well, I mean, it's almost always enough. Okay. What does that mean? Well, there are failure rates associated with each of these methods. So the copper coil has perfect use and typical use at 0.2%. So just to describe perfect use and typical use, perfect use is what you do if you're in a clinical trial and Mm -hmm. you're using it exactly as you should. And typical use is what most people tend to use it as. Okay. The copper coil, hormonal coil, and things like the progesterone implant have very similar typical and perfect use because they're what's called fit and forget methods. Okay. Which means that a doctor just has to put it in for you or a nurse or healthcare professional Mm. um, so that it doesn't really change because you're not actually doing anything there. Yeah. But things like the combined pill has perfect use of 0.3% failure. So that's three people in a thousand will get pregnant. Okay. And it has a typical use of 9%. Wow. Then the mini pill is similar, 0.3 perfect use and 8% typical use. And condoms, which we haven't talked about yet, have perfect use of 2% and typical use of 18%. 
18% is the failure rate for condoms. I mean, that just makes, I don't know if it's my age, but that just makes me think so much about the Friends episode where Ross is absolutely outraged that condoms <laughs> aren't perfect the whole time and he calls the company and yells at them. Yeah. But 18% is high. Yeah, so typically people, if there are 100 people use condoms every time they have sex, 18 of them will become pregnant. That's insane. I know, isn't it crazy? <laughs> but let's not eschew condoms okay. from our arsenal of contraceptive <laughs> devices. God, I hope our dad's not listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> because also, let's not forget that condoms are the only method of contraception to, pre- to prevent against STIs. That's quite a big deal. Mm, that's really important, actually. Yeah. And I think condoms are quite often pushed on people from the LGBTQ community, but mm-hmm. not pushed anywhere near as much for het- heterosexual cis individuals mm-hmm. for whom most of the information about contraception seems to be aimed at. Yeah. But the crucial thing to remember also is that these failure rates is that perfect use is something that can be taught yeah I get that it can be taught for sure but it's also so easy to to forget and and for one-off mistakes to happen um so by perfect use for condoms do you mean like those banana demonstrations that we have at school (laughs) yeah they're actually so important everyone needs to know how to put on a condom properly and also there are certain things that you actually can't do with condoms like what well, did you know that oil destroys the latex in condoms? Mm. So, for example, if people have oil-based lubes or using things like baby oil, body lotion, coconut oil, apparently is used quite often as a lube, but it can just destroy their condom. Wow, I actually did know that, but it's probably surprising how many people use kitchen things for lube. Yeah, I'd say that's a bad idea anyway. To Stay away from the kitchen, people. Okay, so there are actually some demonstrations of people rubbing baby lotion on condoms and them exploding as part of like an educational demonstration. (laughs) But I think we should tweet some videos there. (laughs) Okay, we'll share on Twitter. Okay, okay, so condoms, mm, yeah, no baby oil. But um, there's also quite a high fail rate for the pill, I think, because it's 0.03 perfect use, Mm. but 9% failure rate is actually quite... And also the difference between the two. Yeah, so I didn't actually realise that it was so low for um the pill and actually really the, the coil has such good failure rates in comparison yeah but it's just used way less often well i mean i guess it's the fit and forget thing right i mean even with perfect use you could use the pill perfectly for months on end and then just something comes up you know you there's no such thing as a perfect day i guess so there's no true. such thing as perfect use yeah so maybe you'd like vomit or something mm-hmm. and within your hourly time window yeah so i suppose perfect use for the pill does mean that whole thing about taking it at the same time each day. So why? Why is that? Well, this is how the drugs were designed to work. And because, as we discussed before, the cycle is controlled by this delicate dance of hormones. (laughs) I wish I had a better phrase for that, but you know what I mean. (laughs) I really like it, delicate dance of hormones. (laughs) So taking the pill at the same dose at the same time every day keeps these hormones at a stable level and prevents Mm. them fluctuating outside of that stable level. Because otherwise, your body could go back into your cycle and maybe start preparing for ovulation. Yeah, everyone's got that horror story, haven't they? That person who says they were taking the pill perfectly and they still got pregnant. Yeah, and as we say all the time on the show, everyone is different and no medical intervention is perfect. And there was actually some research done recently that suggested that some people have higher levels of these enzymes that break down the hormones delivered by, I think it was the mini pill specifically, which makes them less effective. So perhaps some people's cycles are just less easy to control, but further to that, we don't really know. An enzyme? Blimey. Okay. So traditionally, 
Information around contraception isn't always targeted towards people from the trans community, for example. So I just wanted to take a moment to investigate that a little bit more. So how does contraception affect the trans community? So for this, I reached out to a few charities who had some information for me. I found some materials from the Terence Higgins Trust, which were very interesting. And also I spoke to Metro Charity. Um, So obviously we've talked a lot about how choosing contraception is a really personal experience Hmm. and should definitely be a personal experience. And the type of contraception that a trans person may choose might depend where on their journey of transition they might be. So for example, someone who was assigned female at birth might need to change the kind of contraception they're on. So hormone containing contraceptives like the oral combined pill may not be suitable for those people. Um, But actually quite a lot of people often think that uh, taking testosterone is a good enough um, contraceptive on its own. Oh, really? But it's not. Oh. Um, But things like the copper coil could be a really good option for people, especially as they're the fit and forget methods. Yeah, of course. Which could be helpful, especially because these kinds of conversations can be really dysphoric for people. So for those who are assigned male at birth... um, Condoms, of course, are obviously always encouraged as the way to avoid STIs, but obviously they have their own disadvantages and advantages, so someone needs to kind of look into the sorts of things that are involved with that. Yeah. So from what I understand as well, these kinds of conversations do happen in gender clinics, uh, where people might feel that they can have these sort of discussions in a safe place Mm. with no judgment Mm. and that kind of thing. I did find um, a great place called Clinic U, who I haven't been able to get in touch with yet because I've been very busy. Um, but they also have some lots and lots of really useful advice specifically on this subject. So I would advise anyone to get in touch with them if they feel like they need more information. Okay, so now I feel like I have a handle on my menstrual cycle and and, uh, how the pill works to control that. Okay, great. But one of the things that concerns me as a pill user are some of the bad associations that people tell you about. Mm, Okay, hit me with one. Okay, so a common association is weight gain. Yeah, interesting. So when they've done trials for almost all of the contraceptive devices, I think apart from the injection... Um, there has been absolutely no evidence that they can increase your your weight gain. Really? Yeah. So they've been branded as weight neutral is what they're called. But so many people say that this happens to them. Yeah, which is weird. So it's definitely in the lived experiences of plenty of people. Mm. I heard some doctors saying that it might be coincidental. You know, Mm. as as time goes on and you're taking the pill more, you're getting older, which means you're naturally putting on more weight anyway. So it's not the pill, you're just getting older. Yeah, which is quite (laughs) sad. Um, And, you know, there have been suggestions that these hormones change how your body retains water, so making you more bloated. Okay. And hormones definitely do change the way that your muscles develop, which can change the shape and the makeup of your body. Um, But another thing is that there are receptors for these hormones present at the highest levels in the ovaries, which allow the cycle to be controllable, but they are present elsewhere, for example, in the breast tissue and even in the fat on your hips and your thighs. So the binding of estrogen within the combined pill, for example, um, to these receptors could allow these areas to grow. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. I also heard somewhere about how the hormones can change your mood. 
which again changes your relationship with food. Maybe it makes you eat more. Yeah, I've heard that as well. But so again, if you're feeling a bit low, maybe you'll have more chocolate or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But there's no conclusive evidence to this. So mm. it could be a case of Chinese whispers, to be yeah. honest. Yeah. Um, okay, the next big one. Um, I have a bit of white coat syndrome. So every time that I go in to see a nurse, my blood pressure just goes whoop. And they always say, um, they always have to check it a couple of times because because I'm on the pill, um, it could mean that I, my blood pressure has actually gone up. And so they have to check it to make sure it hasn't gone up. Mm. Yeah, so blood pressure is actually more simple than weight gain. Um, because this is a particularly a problem with estrogen. There are also estrogen receptors in the liver, which is involved in the production of clotting factors. Mm. So theoretically the more estrogen you take the more likely your blood is to start clotting so obviously blood clots could form and then the stroke can form from a blood clot in your brain so research has shown that your risk of stroke and things like blood pressure can increase when you're taking estrogen hormones Mm -hmm. um, no matter how long you've been taking it wow but the general recommendation now is that anyone with high blood pressure or at risk of de- developing clots, so for people with family history or those who have migraines, should try the non-oestrogen methods. But that's super annoying because it isn't always possible for some people. I know, and I get migraines, so I'm technically also contraindicated for the combined pill because mm. I think somehow that means I'm a clot risk. Um, but I've had awful times in the past with progesterone methods. Is anyone actually doing anything about this? Like, surely it needs more research. Yeah, so there is some research going into avoiding this, uh, particularly where some research groups are looking to use different forms of estrogens that actually don't bind to these receptors on the liver. But this area definitely needs more funding. And probably more women in science who actually care about this issue. Well, we care about this issue. Good. Um, okay, so another one, probably the big one, cancer risk. Yeah, so as I said before, there are receptors for estrogen elsewhere in the body, and this is important for cancer of the breast tissue. Mm. So we know that cancer is uncontrolled growth of cells in a particular region. The theory is that binding of estrogen to these receptors in the breast could allow excessive growth growth of this tissue. Mm. So there have been quite a lot of studies to prove this, actually. One released in 2014 found that women who'd taken the pill were more likely to have a breast cancer diagnosis. Um, and it, they also showed that this was stronger in, in general for people who took moderate to high dose pills. So that's 30 to 50 micrograms of estrogen, which is kind of what happened up until the 80s. Most people were on 50 micrograms. Um, but research has been trying to lower that dose for people. Mm, I need to check what mine is. Yeah, I think it's quite high. <laughs> um, but I, I think 30 is the average. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's 30 actually. Yeah. Um, So there are now like super low ones, which are 20 micrograms, which tends to be better. Um, But I also did read a review from 2017 who analysed lots and lots of different studies in this subject. So loads of people, loads of studies. Um, It's a much larger sample sample size. And they concluded when they put everything together, the the risk of developing breast cancer equaled 13 more cases of breast cancer per 100,000 people for those who were taking or had recently taken the pill. So that would be a 0.013 increase in your relative risk. Okay. I'm kind of relieved that that's actually a pretty small number. Yeah, definitely. Like 13, 13 more in 100,000 people is, is not very much. Yeah. Um, but I think the advice is still for anyone with a family risk, again, of breast cancer or even cervical cancer, that you might want to consider non-estrogen containing pills. Definitely. But also, the evidence does suggest that this is reversible. So they found that if people stop taking the pill, your risk should return to a baseline after about 10 years. Well, that's something. Yeah, that's true. Um, Okay, but that's breast cancer. What about other types of cancer? 
So interestingly, there is slightly more recent evidence that shows that women who have taken the pill have a reduced risk for ovarian and uterine cancer. So for ovarian cancer, I think the stats are that you're 20% less likely to develop the disease. Wow, that's actually huge. Yeah, and importantly, this persists even after you stop taking the pill. So it only drops back down to a 15% lower risk after 20 to 29 years after taking the pill. That's amazing. Yeah, so compared to the numbers and and the stats I gave for breast cancer, that's quite a significant benefit. Definitely. Importantly, though, I'd like to make the point that in in all of these studies that I've looked at, and this is relevant for stroke and blood pressure as well, a lot of them say that lifestyle factors such as obesity, a sedentary lifestyle, alcohol consumption and smoking have a much bigger impact on the development of these diseases. Right. Which makes sense, as we know these things strongly impact oncogenesis and cancer development, as well as blood pressure. Right. So another piece of advice from me, um, cancer researcher, (laughs) would be to look after yourself in those ways before you worry about your risks with the pill. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So we're looking at avoiding obesity, sedentary lifestyle, alcohol consumption, smoking. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. Okay, but moving on slightly, there are lots of reasons why people would choose different methods of contraception. Yeah, and I think it's important to consider you as an individual, what you feel more comfortable with and what's going to work for you. But let's, uh, let's start to get frank and slightly. So you've said that researchers are looking into reducing some of those side effects and the associated negative health outcomes. So the million pound question here for me is, are men ever going to have a go? Where is the male pill? <laughs> yeah. So as I said a minute ago, this doesn't just affect cis women. It also should affect any sexually active man. Sexually. But sexually. Sexually active man. But at the moment, I mean, they're just, it's just condoms, right? Yeah, or vasectomy, which is pretty permanent for some people. Although it can be undone, right? <laughs> yeah, but with very expensive and painful surgery. Ooh, okay, horrible. So what are the possibilities in terms of research? Because I'm pretty certain that I've heard about a male pill in the works. Mm, yeah, it's exciting. Okay, so the the first thing to mention is that male fertility is actually a little harder to control. Oh, why is that? Whereas female fertility is all controlled by those fluctuations of multiple hormones acting together in a nice neat cycle to release to release one or a few eggs in mm-hmm. cases. Male fertility is literally just a steady production of loads and loads of sperm. <laughs> Millions of sperm produced every day. Mm. That said, though, each individual sperm of the millions takes about three months to mature. Yeah, classic. So what can we do? (laughs) Well, generally speaking, to control male fertility, we either block the sperm production or halt sperm motility. Um, So how does sperm get produced? You can't get grossed out now. We've been talking ages about the menstrual cycle. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) So the process starts in the testicles. (laughs) Testicles. (laughs) Emma. (laughs) So unprofessional. The process starts in the testicles, where sperm are first produced. Where sperm are first produced. No, I can't. The process starts in the testicles, where sperm are first produced. But they need to make their way through the reproductive tract called the vas deferens, which gives the sperm all they need in terms of the nutrients and the energy they need to swim, and also the calcium, which makes their tails spin round. Stop laughing. I'm sorry, it's just there's something so visual about sperm that you just don't really get with eggs. When you're talking about the eggs and the follicles, I kind of imagine like little follicles, you know, ushering it along. But there's just something so incredibly visual about sperm. Yeah, I imagine them with little faces. (laughs) Oh, wow, I don't even imagine them with faces, but just the swimming and getting the energy from their vas deferens. (laughs) Yeah, well. Um, But did you know the initial production of sperm is controlled by the same hormones that start egg production? 
Do you remember what those were? FH and LH. FSH and LH, but close. Almost a gold star to me. <laughs> but what does that mean? I mean, could we not just use the same hormone to control the, the male sperm production cycle then? Well, theoretically, this might work. But if you give a cis male loads of female hormones, in particular estrogen, he would probably start to develop female sex characteristics like breasts. Okay, so not that. Um, What is possible for men? (laughs) Well, people have looked at different combinations of hormones, including types of progesterone and testosterone, which both actually stop the pituitary gland from producing FSH and LH. Mm -hmm. So far in the clinic, testosterone has been tested in gel form, in injections, implant and in pill pill form. Gel form? There is... (laughs) Yeah, so there's... There is a gel that you can apply daily to your arms and shoulders that's been shown to be really effective at stopping sperm production. But, Um, like, what man is going to stand there every day and apply a gel to his arms and shoulders? To be honest, you'd probably have to do it for them. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But also, like, what if they rub up against someone? Like, put a shirt on too quickly and don't let it absorb. Exactly. It doesn't sound sound like the right thing. What about an injection? Yeah, so the um, other thing I read quite a lot about was this injection into the vas deferens, again, the reproductive tract in the testicles. And so either this contains like a a chemical that degrades the sperm or more interestingly, a kind of uh, porous synthetic like plastic jelly plug Mm -hmm. that just stops the sperm from actually getting out and reaching the egg. Mm -hmm. There's one called vassal gel, which is a type of what's called a reversible inhibition of sperm under guidance. (laughs) And it's administered under local anaesthetic in the same kind of procedure as in the vasectomy. So it's still quite a serious procedure. Yeah, and quite expensive, presumably. Yeah, exactly. And then it could be reversible by injection of another substance to degrade the gel. So you're degrading the sperm and then you're degrading the gel. Well, it wouldn't degrade the sperm. It will block the sperm from getting out. it. Okay. Is this something that will be on the market soon? Well, the company who make this, I think they're called uh, Parsimus Foundation. They are apparently working on animal trials at the moment, but they were supposed to start clinical human trials in 2013, but haven't quite got to that phase yet. Ooh, not a great sign. So I think the most likely thing that will come out is this um, pill form that's the combination of testosterone and progestin, I think, again, another type of progesterone. Mm. So there's one called dimethandrolone under canoate. Rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> So I think this has just been approved as as being safe and tolerable um, by a handful of people in a clinical trial, which was published in February 2019. Exciting. Yeah, so it was shown also to reduce the serum levels of FSH and LH. Sorry, serum is is blood levels. Okay. um, Which could theoretically reduce sperm production as well. That part of the investigation is currently uh, being tested, Hmm. but it hasn't been tested yet in terms of its actual ability to get anyone or to not get anyone pregnant okay there is a similar pill that's actually um made by the same company who i think they announced it even like a couple of days ago but it hasn't been published yet so i haven't looked at that data watch this space watch this space who knows within 10 15 20 years this could be an actual thing for men let's hope they want to use it and now it's time for some light refreshment Today, we are drinking a nicer wine than normal mm. because we're at mum and dad's house. And it's Mother's Day. And it's Mother's Day. So mum has acquired this by means of recommendation from a neighbour. So what is it, Emma? We're drinking Tramarie, um, which is a wine from Da Uve de Primitivo. It's rosé. It's, ro- it's rosé. It's pink But wine. it's from Primitivo wines. Uh, Primitivo grapes. I've had a couple of glasses already. <laughs> 
And um, yeah, let's describe it. Bang. <laughs> yeah, show on the road. <laughs> oh, and it's from San Marzano. Wherever that is. Well, so it's a very lovely spring weekend. Um, and I love a rosé. You can hear squeaking floorboards. Hi, Mum. Say hello to the podcast. Because you're no longer alone. Super professional. (laughs) Immediately into your BBC voice there. Hello. (laughs) Hello, world. Okay, so. I love a rosé in... (laughs) In a lovely, lovely summery day, a rosé mm. is just the nicest thing. And I yeah. know that's so basic of me to say, yeah, but it just works. Basic. It's just so it's a bit basic. But there is sun in the sky right now, so... Yeah, exactly. It's beautiful. So to me, this is nice. This is nice. It's what nice. I like about it, Go on. when you look at the bottle, it's mm. actually a really beautiful bottle. Mm. I would recommend this because it, it's kind of got a dense colour at the top and then it fades into almost completely translucent watery at the... Yeah. And you know, it's got one of those things... Okay, now I sound like a properly basic bitch but yeah. you know how they talk about when it's got a how would you describe like an, that? a concave a section a concave bottom yeah concave bottom a concave bottom, bottom. that means bottom <laughs> that means it's posh wine or that it's better yeah I, I always do that I always I feel that's true bottom I think it's just like Stop feeling about wine's bottom. No, I think like... <laughs> um, that is basic bitch, but um, it, it becomes really translucent to that bottom level and it kind of looks quite stunning. Um, taste-wise, my tasting notes... Hold on. You didn't sniff then? You're supposed to sniff. Sniff... No, sniff and gulp is yeah. what you told me to do. Okay. Okay. Mmm. <laughs> More than that, you have to roll it over the different parts of your tongue. Yeah, yeah, Because okay. different parts of your tongue will pick up different taste but it is quite acidic it's not as kind of light and like refreshing it tastes kind of more like oh yeah it does it tastes like i don't know how to describe that it's just more like on your tongue yeah oh thanks i don't really think i need any more to be honest (laughs) but it it is really pretty it is really pretty that's kind of what i love about rosé as well yeah i do think it's elegant and i do think it's um light but it's just it's just got that sort of acidic acidity acidity um but i'm actually really enjoying this i do like like, it a lot and it feels like a gateway to the summer oh totally i always feel so summery especially like we've just had a nice sunday lunch Mm um and you know with the with the lovely spring weather yeah. and a glass of rosé, it just works. And actually, so it's very acidic on the sides of the tongues. Mm-hmm. Of the tongues. Of the tongue. <laughs> but then when you swallow it back, it's got a much lighter, almost fruitier... It's not a fruity rosé. Yeah, actually, it's not like... I've had some... Like, I had some a little while ago that was honestly tasted like... I think it was supposed to taste like strawberries and cream, and it did, Ooh, but I didn't love that. quite a cheap... Yeah, because you don't want to have, like... You don't want it to be, like, deserty. No, you want us no, to I have, like, something refreshing, yeah. Yeah, it is actually... One thing I will say is very refreshing. Do you know what? It's so funny. The more we talk about this, the more I'm like, yeah, yeah I really like, I like this. It. And, and I think it's a sophisticated... It's a beautiful-looking bottle. It's gorgeous. I'm going to keep that, actually. You should. And it obviously came as a recommendation from someone who absolutely loves it. And yeah. I think if you want to find a rosé, wow, what a good choice. Brilliant. So out of ten, come on. Um, so, uh, eight. Really? Eight. At, me. at the beginning of the wine review, I would have maybe said eight. But now I'm thinking eleven. It's got a real... Eleven? Yeah, that's possible. You just, like, smacked the glass with your own. I was shocked. I was actually my nail. I just thought it had real sweetness to it. When you don't let it sort of drip down to the sides of your tongue and you just go straight to the back of your throat, it's actually quite sweet. Yeah. Yeah, I'd give it 11 out of 10, actually. Yeah, the neck. All right, well, there you go. Cheers. 
So there you have it. We've lifted the lid on everything that happens to your body when you're taking contraception. There's some good, there's some bad, and you guessed it, there's some ugly. There are also tons more options than we've mentioned here, from patches to apps that tell you when they think you're least likely to get pregnant in your cycle. Whatever you choose, it's important it's your choice and feels right for your body and your lifestyle. And who knew that a woman's womb shuts down for part of the cycle? As always, we'd love to hear your comments and your thoughts. You have been listening to Frankenwine. This episode was produced, written and presented by Katie Begg and Emma Begg.